This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And our next story comes from a listener named Jamie Scott. Jamie used to be a Boy Scout troop leader, and this story is about an infamous snipe hunt in Georgia. Take it away, Jamie. I used to be in the Navy. I retired from the Navy in 1996. And I lived in various places up and down the East Coast, but one of my favorite places I lived was a place called Folkestone, Georgia. While I was there, I decided I wanted to get involved in scouting again. I had been an Eagle Scout, and I wanted to stay involved in scouting. So now that I was on shore duty, I thought it would be a great opportunity. I had a lot of boys in my troop. I had Hispanic boys, black boys, white boys, but they were all just boys. Boys, 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 just out to have fun. A couple of them have dads, most of them didn't. A couple of them had a few dollars to their name, most of them didn't. But anyway, I took these boys to summer camp at Camp Tolachi. The boys I took out on the troop, they really wanted to get involved, they wanted to do scouting, they wanted to learn, they wanted to shoot rifles, and they wanted to pull archery, and they wanted to canoe and a canoe, and all these different things. So we were having a wonderful time, but one of the greatest parts of scouting, one of the greatest parts of growing up as a boy in the South, at least at the time that I was a kid, and the time that I was a scout leader, was the snipe hunt. Oh, the snipe hunt. The snipe hunt was awesome. These kids got excited. They were going to go out and, and capture the elusive snipe. But the thing is, in order to catch a snipe, you have to go out in the night, in the dark, in the woods, alone. And you have to sit out there all by yourself alone, hoping to catch a snipe. Now, how you say, how would I get a boy to sit out there in the woods alone to catch a snipe? Ah. Boys are not only adventurous, they're greedy. So what we would do is we would tell the boys that the snipes were these small ground running birds and we would even show them a picture in the Boy Scout handbook of the American snipe. It's a bird that uh, exists in the desert, but we would say that this bird also exists in the marshes of the swamps of Georgia and that this bird came in multiple colors depending upon what it was eating. You know, how a flamingo has a pink color because of the shrimp that it eats. Same thing with the snipes. Their feathers would be certain colors depending upon uh, the, what they were eating at the time. Some like to eat certain things, some like to eat other things, and it caused their feathers to change. But you never knew what you are going to run into. So, got these boys and we, we brought in... Uh, one of the members of the Order of the Arrow. He was a camp counselor, his name was Indy. That wasn't his real name, I honestly don't know his real name, but he went by the name Indy because Indiana Jones was the big movie at that time, and he had an Indiana Jones hat. And all the boys in the camp called him Indy. But Indy was in on our little snipe hunting escapade, and he was telling us how that, that the Order of the Arrow liked to make Indian headdresses, and they needed different color feathers in order to make the headdresses. And so what they would do is they would pay 
for feathers that could be purchased from the boys who were doing the snipe hunts. If they caught a red snipe, well, the red feathers, they were worth about $5 for every 50 feathers. But if they caught a yellow snipe, well, they were worth about $10 for every 50 feathers. But the real elusive prize was the purple snipe, and they were paying $100 for 50 feathers because they were so rare, and everybody wanted the purple snipe feathers. Though the purple ones we wanted to catch were the most elusive and the most uh, expensive, they were also the most dangerous because they could actually bite you. And there had been known to be rabies. Well, we figured that if a kid got bit out in the woods by a snake, because there were poison snakes in the area, that at least they would react properly. So we taught them what to do about in case you were bitten by the rabid purple snipe. I know, I think we were crazy, but we just had so much fun with these kids and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Well, three particular boys were going to be hunting at this time. It was a boy named John Roy, who was my senior patrol leader, and he had already been through snipe hunts before with his dad. But uh, there were three younger boys, Robert, Greg, and Curtis, and they had never been snipe hunting before. They were all excited about going snipe hunting. And so uh, we told them that we were going to go hunt. We were going to hunt these snipes in these different colors. And Robert, bless his heart, he just told me about the fact that his father hunted snipes all the time and had caught a whole bunch of them and that they even had a picture album at home of all the pictures of the snipes that his dad had caught and he figured if his dad could catch a whole bunch of them he could catch too now i don't know what kind of bull his dad had pulled on him Now the object is, you tell the boy that he's gonna catch a snipe. So what you do is you give him uh, a bag. We usually gave him a white plastic bag. And a lot of people didn't want to give him, but I, would, I wanted to give him a flashlight. And what they would do is I would tell them to put the, open the bag up. They had a stick also. So they would take a stick and they would open the front of the bag like a trap and they would put the light behind the bag. And we would put them down at the end of a trail in a very quiet, dark spot. And then they were supposed to make this call of the snipe. The call of the snipe goes like this. Snipe? Snipe, snipe? Snipe? We, on the other hand, would go back up the trail quite a ways, and we would get real quiet and wait. And the object was that snipes would hear the voice of the boy, and would come towards the noise of the call of the other snipe. We would then come running down the trail as fast as we could, and hopefully there would be a snipe in the trail who would be scared, and he would run. Now, snipes would run right at a light. That was what snipes did. Don't know why, but they did. That's a proven fact. You could ask any scientist that snipes run at, at lights. And so the boy would, the object was the snipe would run right at him, and then he would run into the bag, you would shut the bag and take the stick and whack the snipe over the head and kill the snipe, and boom, that's how you caught a snipe. In reality, we would get up to the end of the trail, we would call snipe, snipe, and he would think that he was hearing another snipe answering him back. So then we would make a run down the trail, and usually somebody would get some sort of a rock or something like that, and we would 
rolled it ahead of us real fast and it would crash through the underbrush right next to the boy. And, and we said, we saw one on the trail. Did you see it? Did you see it? And uh, he would say, yeah, I think so. We would say, well, I didn't see what color it was. What, what was it? He says, it, it was green. It was green snipe. Oh, or it was a purple snipe. I saw it. <laughs> one boy told me it ran right between his legs. That's what he told me. But anyway, we go back up the trail, maybe run one more time. And then we tell him we're going to wait just a little bit longer, give him more time to get set. And then we would just walk away. And we would go sit back at the campsite and wait for this boy to figure it out, come out of the woods, and ha-ha, you've been got. So we uh, we went down to, I was doing the, the one with um, Greg. And uh, another boy was doing one with Robert. Another boy was doing one with Curtis. And uh, we decided to pull a trick and say, uh, uh, when we were running down, I was supposed to, I was supposed to roll off into the woods, and I was supposed to say that I was hurt. I was hurt, and I was going to yell that I'd been bitten by a rabbit snipe and robbery. And I was going to ask uh, Greg to come save me. So I did. This boy got up and left. He went back to the other boys, and they caught him coming out of the woods. They said, "They said Mr. Scott's in there. Said he's been bitten by a purple snipe." They said, "Well." Go in there and get him. I remember Greg, I heard him say it clearly, but he could, Mr. Scott been bit, he could just die. <laughs> oh, that was hilarious. That was hilarious. We came out, patted him on the back, said, good job, buddy, you did great. So we came up and we saw the group that was running with Robert. Now, we decided, let's do it again. And Robert, and then uh, uh, Andy said, hey, that was a great idea you guys did over there. I want to do it here for Robert. And he ran down inside there, he was yelling and screaming, trying to run the snipe. And then he shows off to the side, says, oh, help me, Robert, help, Robert, I've been hurt. Now, Robert, Robert, again, bless his heart, he wanted to help so bad, he went running and crashing through the underbrush going, Indy, Indy, where are you, Indy? Well, Indy had got out the other side of the, of the thicket that we were in, and he ran around to another angle and said, I'm over here, Robert, I'm over here. And you could hear Robert change direction and come toward him and say, Indy, Indy, where are you, Indy? And Indy ran around to another side and, and he was saying, I'm over here, Robert, I'm over here. And Indy, and Robert said, Indy, stay still so I can find you. Oh, it was all we could do not to hurt ourselves. And we were right up against another troop's campsite and the scoutmasters were just looking at us and jaws hanging open and we were rolling and they were listening to this whole thing. So we decided just to go on down the road. Uh, and go see what was going on with Curtis and leave Robert thrashing around looking for Indy trying to save him. I know we sound terrible, but gosh, this was fun. So we go down and we're looking for Curtis and we're about to do the same thing. Curtis had just come out of the woods and he was done and he kind of, they kind of, his didn't go so well. It was kind of, you know, we didn't get anything. We didn't see anything. It was kind of a, a weak snipe hunt, but it wasn't over yet. Because as we're standing there talking to the group with Curtis, we hear, Andy, Andy, where are you, Andy? Robert is still searching, and now he's out on a he's out on a dirt road, and he's heading down the road towards us. And Andy turns and says, "Over here, Robert, help me!" So he laid down on the ground in the moonlight, and we kind of all snuck into the woods a little bit. And Robert comes down the road. He sees Andy, and he comes running to him. And just before he gets there, we jump out and we yell, boo, all at once. 
Robert just jumped back and he fell back right on his back. And he gets up and he's crying and everything else like this. And of course, I really felt bad. But he goes, what'd you guys do that for? Indy's been bitten and I'm trying my best to save him. Indy's hurt. He's been bitten. Oh, uh, this is still on. This is still going. He is real wrapped up in what he's doing. He doesn't realize this is still a joke, but what the heck, we'll still play with it. So of course, Indy is all into this. He's swooning, oh, oh. So we picked him up. We did a, 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 a carry, you know, a couple of us picked him and we carried him to a campsite and we laid him on the table and we're trying to figure out what to do with him. We say, hey, he's been bit by that rabid snipe. We got, we got to get a doctor, we got to get a doctor. Well, here goes Curtis. Now Curtis was the smallest of the scouts at the time and he was young and he was quick. And Curtis says, I'll get a doctor and boom, he was gone running as fast as he could down the dirt road towards the camp office. I thought, oh my goodness, he's gonna go out there and he's gonna have to call 911. So I am running and lugging myself down the road chasing this little fella. And he, <laughs> he runs into the camp office and he comes, throws in there, yells a few things, comes flying out. And uh, uh, I, I, has, I say, go back and help out. And I ran into office and there's Robert Robin Ray, who was the, the uh, camp director. And he slept in the office. He had a uh, a bunk in there and he's standing in his underwear about half asleep picking up the phone looking at me like what's going on I, i've got a i've got a, a an injured scout what happened i said robert robin don't worry about it go back to sleep it i'll tell you about it in the morning there's no problem just go back to sleep <laughs> and he turned around and crawled back into bed so i headed back down to the campsite and uh, Curtis is down there saying, you know, the, the, the medical's on the way. Indy is still, I mean, Indy is playing it up, man. Now he, he's talking deliriously. He's asking for his mother. He's, he sees his dead grandfather. He's doing all sorts of stuff. And Robert is just dancing around. And Greg, well, Greg knows what's going on by now, but Greg is not saying anything. Finally, we said, oh, okay, you know, let's just, uh, let's just take a break. I said, guys, we pulled a joke on you. I said, uh, you know, we, we pulled a joke on you, Curtis, pulled a joke on you. I said, you know, there's no such thing as, you know, this isn't real. There's no purple snipe. He wasn't bitten. He wasn't hurt. So it's okay. Um, it, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. And uh, and everybody kind of ha-ha laughs a little bit. Indy sits up, got a big grin. Robert looks at us and straight as an arrow. He says, I knew you guys were goofing the whole time because this is not how you really hunt snipe. I know, because my dad has been snipe hunting, and he's told me, and, and we've got pictures in the album on our table at home. Priceless. Priceless. And you've been listening to Jamie Scott tell the story of the Tolachi snipe hunt in Camp Tolachi, Georgia. And the Boy Scouts, well, what memories for so many millions of men, young men, boys, coming upon some hard times for... Some things that have happened that people have read about in the press, but what an organization and what good they've done across this great country. And hopefully they can survive their, their recent problems. And Jamie Scott, what a storyteller. Retired Navy submariner from 1981 to 1996. In killing a lot of time underwater, you develop an appetite for practical jokes and for storytelling. There's a lot of time to kill if you're a subber. A lot of work to do too, but a lot of time to kill. And again, we're looking for your story. Send them to Our American Stories. This is another classic listener story, the Tolachi Snipe Hunt. Thanks to Jamie Scott. 
And thanks to Mon- Monty Montgomery for great production as always. The Tolachi Snipe Hunt, Jamie Scott's story, a great listener's story here on Our American Story. stories and now we have a story from Leslie Leyland Fields. She's an author and speaker that lives in Alaska. We often forget about Alaska. It's an entirely different world apart from our 48 contiguous states. Leslie is bringing us a small taste of her home by telling us the story of their little fishing town's first telephone. Here's Leslie. We got our first phone in 1989. It cost $5,000 and took a week to install. We had to do part of the work ourselves, erect a 50-foot aluminum pole with four guy wires, each 100 feet long, tied into pilings that we sank and cemented into holes as deep as we could dig. It was a lot of work for something I didn't want. One of the great boons of living out on an island in the Gulf of Alaska had been having no telephone to answer. My obligations in the town of Kodiak, our winter home, could be shed the minute I climbed into the bush plane to get to that island, where I go every summer to work in our family-owned commercial fishing operation. My friends all knew that the only way to communicate with me from June to September was by mail, slow mail. Letters had to endure many layovers in many terminals, the last one the worst of all because the post office was 30 minutes away by skiff, and we went only once a week. Thus I was spared having to invent excuses for belated replies. But in 1989, among the buildings that shelter our extended family of 15 plus seven employees, the cabin where my husband and I live was singled out for the installation of this new technology. The decision was logical, I grant. Our cabin sits on the open south end of the island with no overhead bluffs, no land masses to interfere with the radio waves, just a straight shot out in all directions. But here was the catch. Since all costs and resources are shared among us communally, This was not to be my private phone. I was to be the message taker and phone slave for 22 people, all with relationships, creditors, lovesick girlfriends, or worried mothers. I did not want this role. We were considerably behind other fishing camps in the bay and getting a phone Our neighbors a mile across the water had had one for four years already by the time we got ours. In fact, we often motored over in our skiffs to use it, though always sheepishly. When we couldn't face them yet again, we would make a run to Larson Bay, where a phone was available, but not easily so, in the community center. Until 1983, when private phones were installed for the first time, 
The entire village of then 120, like other villages in remote Alaska, had a single phone. It was a satellite phone with a characteristic delays and tinny echoes that signaled a call from very far away. In the summer, when the village was full of fishermen and cannery workers, the phone was always attended by a queue at least 10 people long, and each person was limited to five minutes. I felt sorriest for the year-round residents who had to endure the summer takeover and line up with everyone else. We overheard a lot of news as we stood in that line, and some family secrets, and mostly learned to use verbal shorthand when our turn came. For those early summers, that was the communications drill. Drive the skiff to Larson Bay, if not to the neighbors, weather permitting, walk half a mile to the community center, and stand in line for 50 minutes to get five. We were all grateful for that one phone, though, especially those of us who remembered the pre-satellite days before 1980, when the only link between the village and the outside world was a single sideband radio. In the years since its installation, our telephone has fully lived up to my expectations. Although our number is listed in the phone book and has seven digits, just like everyone else's, I describe it as a radio for the sake of the uninitiated, who without this important qualifier would expect conversation as usual. Calling it by its technical name, a half-duplex radiophone, would do little to describe its features and flaws. The body is a small black box the size of a video cassette, with a cord and a mouthpiece like those of a CB or any other handheld radio. The numbers are not on the body, but on the mouthpiece, which also serves as earpiece and receiver. Using it is indeed like radio communication. You key the mic, pressing a button to speak, and then releasing it when finished. Only one person can speak at a time. Both voices, the callers and the receivers, are broadcast into the room. The caller, usually unknowingly, is speaking aloud to three entire households. This is most unfortunate when lovesick crewmen take to the airways. So in love are they, however, that even if they know their impassioned messages are bleeding into three living rooms, they alter their conversation in neither content nor length. Despite the phone part of this apparatus, my husband still operates it as though it were a radio. When it rings, rather than answer with a cordial, hello, Fields residence, as he does in town, he answers with a terse, this is Harvester Island. That is not mere eccentricity. Here, where you live is who you are. On the VHF radio, we call one another not by name, but by distinguishing landmark. Prominent Mound, Little River Rock, Rocky Beach, Chief Cove, Hook Point. Everyone in the Bay knows that Hook Point is the Larsons. Rocky Beach is the Hoys. Rocky Beach is going to host the 4th of July picnic this year, we might say. But... 
An outsider doesn't expect to be answered on a phone by an island. The phone is not always innocent. It lacks timing and occasionally seems to harbor malicious intent. No matter how accurately I dial, it will occasionally call other numbers at random. When trying to reach my sister in New Hampshire, I rang up a pet store in California. When calling a bookstore in Anchorage, I got a women's resource center somewhere in Washington. Worse, the phone may simply cease operating, shutting down in mid-syllable, especially when someone is giving precise directions or important deadlines, but no click or any other sound signals the disconnection. The person at the other end merrily chats along until she finally realizes that there has been no returning beep to signal a successful transmission. And sometimes I can still hear her when she can no longer hear me. Most hobbling to real communication is the delay in transmission. If you tell something you hope is humorous or dramatic, you have to tell it all at once. You never separate a joke from its punchline or a story from its denouement, if you're talking on the radio phone. You cast it out whole into the void of space and then wait the full three seconds for the response. In the best of circumstances, timing is hopelessly out of joint. Only Morse code, not spoken English, is equipped to deal with such pauses and interruptions. Our radio phone then, like the early telegraph wires, is not for relationships or entertainment, but for information only. I didn't want a phone in 1989 because I already had a radio with all of its attendant blessings and curses. Voices from the VHF and the CB filled my house. Most of them voices I didn't want to hear. Many of them the voices of people I didn't know. A skipper on a fishing boat yelling to his skiff man, get away from the rocks! Or a float plane calling a fishing camp to ask for the best place to land. For five years running, our radio picked up a trucker somewhere in the deep south who was using a booster an amplifying unit so powerful it was illegal. This racket was most obnoxious on net mending days when we put the radio on an outside speaker so that we wouldn't miss any calls while we worked on the beach. Then the Mississippi trucker Glossolalia, impenetrable except for the occasional 10-4, harassed us with an unsettling clash of cultures. He clearly was talking on the radio just to talk. The content of his utterances was not the point. For us, thousands of miles away, the radio was only for content, terse bits of information. To be helplessly bathed in this verbal overflow, this abuse of the airwaves on which we were so dependent, irritated us all. When we hit our threshold, the radio went off and no one in the world could reach us, no matter how they tried. When a call comes for me on the radio, I feel a certain drama and a sense of being part of a community. 
But when I'm on the radio phone, I'm aware that my voice is breaking someone else's silence, filling other people's rooms, whether they like it or not. Paradoxically, we live in privacy and isolation, go days and weeks without seeing anyone outside our camp, and yet our every conversation through the airwaves is communal. Because of our seclusion, I get my news weeks late, and I miss every summer Olympics, and yet I know that Jeannie, across the bay, has recommended St. John's Wort to Michelle, who lives another bay away. What bush dwellers ask from the communications revolution is not just working phone lines, but also privacy. Radios, of course, are public by nature. Our VHFs have enough crystals in them to receive and broadcast from about a hundred channels. A grossly excessive number, I thought at first, but I soon saw how small the airwaves could be. One boat captain unofficially claims one channel as his. We claim one as ours. The rest of the bay stands by on channel 69. The Coast Guard has channel 16, and so it goes. Even with nearly a hundred choices, it is hard to find a quiet, obscure spot to chat with a friend. And it's nearly impossible to get there unnoticed. It works like this. You call your friend on the area's main channel. Bird Rock, this is Harvester Island. Wait for response. Nothing. Try again. Bird Rock, Harvester. You got it on there, Sandy? The radio crackles, and then you hear, Yeah, Harvester Island, this is Bird Rock. How you doing, Leslie? Great. Want to go to 71? Roger. Pause. We both turn our dials. You there? Yeah, got you solid. How's it going? And then we talk. But neither of us is deluded into thinking that we are alone. Anywhere within earshot, bored people, maybe 12, maybe 3, or on a sunny day, maybe just one, heard us giving our address and jumped up to switch their radios to the same place. If Sandy is someone I talk with regularly, we will have established our own channel, referred to obliquely as the other one. Then the conversation goes like this. Bird Rock, back to the call. Yeah, Sandy, this is Harvester Island. Want to go to the other one? Roger. But even when we pre-arrange a secret channel, we can never get there alone. Every radio comes equipped with a scanner that can halt at and lock onto even the faintest throat clearing. My secret channel is probably scanned like all the rest. Every time I call on the radio or the phone, which can be also picked up by scanners, I know I may be Comedy Central or Days of Our Lives to some rapt, unseen audience. I have been on fishing boats where, untethered from the voices and the melodramas of TV and talk radio, the crew tunes into local theater instead. Knowing this, I have developed a little test to monitor my conversation's borders. When talking on either apparatus, if I suddenly envision a gaggle of fishermen around a galley table snorting at my revelation, or worse, nodding their heads and saying, hmm, that's not surprising. I could see that about her in a second. 
then I know I've said too much. The larger the imagined audience, the greater the perceived blood spill. My chagrin is only momentary, however. Though I hope for privacy on the phone, I don't really expect privacy on a radio, nor does anyone else. We all set up boundaries between the personal and the public. We can all speak radio, using voices distinct in timbre, rhythm, and inflection from our face-to-face voices and even our phone voices. Radio levels the peaks and valleys of our true voices, just as it raises the emotional topography of our lives, settling us on a vocal plateau of monotony and often predictability. There's a certain comfort in the pattern and the pattern, but always the frustration that the boundaries of the superficial must range so far. Our radiophone lasted from 1989 to 2018. The company stopped making them 20 years ago, but we kept ours going by hook, crook, and by cannibalizing our neighbors' discarded radiophones, who gave up on them years before we did. Last month, we took the little black box off its perch on our table, pulled down the rusted antenna in our front yard, and reluctantly dropped it in the non-recyclables, mumbling a few words of thanks. We have a satellite phone now that cost a bundle that sits on the same table in its own briefcase. It has its own peculiarities, and it costs nearly a dollar a minute to use. The phone bill at the end of every month makes us misty-eyed for that confounded radio phone that was at least dirt cheap. But the spirit of the radio phone lives on in our internet system, which we installed 15 years ago. Now we're connected to the rest of the world, sometimes, depending on the weather, how steady our power supply, the atmosphere, sunspots, and whether or not we're thinking happy thoughts. All this keeps us humble, frustrated, intermittent citizens of the world here on our remote island in Alaska. Will our new communication system ruin us? Will it change our sense of place? I remember back to that first month with our radio phone. An oily loan officer was trying to sell me a home improvement package, but the blurts and beeps of the radio phone unnerved him so thoroughly that he accidentally lapsed into real human speech. I laughed. Clean air, 3,000 miles, an island of mountains, and our own fragile brand of technology had translated his manipulative message with perfect clarity. And suddenly, it was all right to have a phone. And you've been listening to author, speaker, and teacher, Leslie Leyland Fields. A beautiful story about a town, well, quite different than the rest of the towns around this country. But in the end, it's almost to look back at how we used to live and how some are choosing deliberately to live, even in these modern times. And I know a lot of you listening are thinking, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? 
Leslie Leyland Fields' story, and a great job as always to Faith uh, for producing this piece and bringing it to us. Leslie Leyland Fields' story, the story of her remote and small fishing town in Alaska, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us the voice of someone who's worked at the highest levels of two radically different yet similar jobs. But you might not have expected it, giving this beginning, this very early start of his life. There was this lady named O.C. Pittsfield that was allowed to come into our home, and she became the lady that cared for me and took care of me. Instead of the Stockton kid, Earl Smith's mom. As a result of that, I really bonded with uh, O.C. Pittsfield, who I call Grandmama. And she was like the protector for me. My dad worked three jobs, and he was my best friend, and he still is, even though he's passed away. And in the midst of all of that, as I grew up, I felt a sense of rejection. Especially around a memory of when he was four years old, and he was sitting with his mom and her friends, and Earl noticed that the bottle for the newborn baby sitting on one of the ladies' laps was empty, and being told, shut up, fool. For what he said. I said that baby ain't got no milk and you know being slapped, being embarrassed to the point that I wet my pants because the women and the women are laughing that I got slapped and I'm this little kid and I felt like wow it was a horrible feeling to be laughed at. I don't know what age people can go back and remember things from but when you're four years old and you can remember an incident like that that puts a print. It stamps something into your memory, into that memory bank that it just doesn't go away. And what I did not realize was my mom had her own stuff in her box and she was trying to deal with her stuff and I was part of the stuff that she wasn't quite sure how to maneuver through. A young lady in the South married to an older man not of your own choice. As a result of that, that guy is abusive to you. And so she ran away from him, and she wasn't even 16 years old through all of this. And then she marries again. Yeah, and she's married by dad. She has two daughters and a son, and things are okay. Then she's pregnant with me. You know, my mom, in actuality, in hindsight, had every reason in the world to be upset about this kid that shows up three and a half years after she finally quit having kids. She's in her early 20s and finally getting ready to have some kind of life. 
after all these years and the cycle is getting ready to repeat. She's gonna have to take care of this child. Her freedom is gonna be hindered once again. It's almost like she's gonna be shackled once again. And I represented shackles, in my opinion, as I think back on it, I represented shackles to her. And if I, in fact, represented shackles to her, her response to who I was was justified. Because when you're oppressed or shackled, the one thing you wanna do is get out of the shackles or get away from the oppression. So my mom did not have the opportunity just to be a young girl, a, a young lady. I mean, only later did I find that out, but when you're a kid, you don't know that. You don't know what your parents have gone through, and here you are, and you're feeling total rejection because you're a kid, and all you want is to feel some kind of compassion, some kind of love, and you think you're not getting it, Yet what I realized after the fact is she was giving me the best she had. And at least he had OC until his mom decided that he wouldn't have her either. I love this lady beyond reason. And, and then one day I come home and she's not there. And, and I'm like, where is she? Put her out. What does that mean? What does that mean that she's not going to be here at night when I lay down? What does it mean that that lady who was my one safety net, what does it mean when they say that she's no longer going to be available? You, you don't understand what that, you really have to understand what that lady meant to me. She, man, she was, she was my answer. She's not here and you and don't go look for her. What does that mean, don't go look for her? You know, if you lose a million dollars, you're gonna look for it. And she was worth much more than a million dollars to me. So I found out where she lived and the word was, if you go there and you find, if you don't come straight home from school, you know, you're gonna get a spanking. So I weighed the two options. Be around her for a little while and feel the love that she had for me and get a spanking or just come home and not get a spanking. I chose the spanking. I chose it. I fully understood when I got home because I was coming home late, I was gonna get a spanking, but I didn't care. And that's the other thing. You start as a kid to say, I don't care. And that can take you to some really dark places. It can really take you to dark places when you realize as a very young age, I don't care. We had University Pacific that was in Stockton and we'd go over there and find a bike and ride home on it. <laughs> you know, and from the bicycle, you steal a car because you could steal a bike, you could steal a car. Stabbed a guy that was actually a friend of mine at eight years old and just doing crazy things as a way basically to let this anger that I felt out. And I didn't understand it. Kids don't understand why they do what they do until later in life you find out, oh, that's what they call that. That's why you did that. And you're listening to Earl Smith and what a remarkable voice he has. And straight as an arrow, he's telling the story as he recalls it now and with real compassion. When we come back, we'll continue with Earl Smith's story. And as always, we cover these stories about love and the lack thereof 
because, well, it defines a life, particularly love's absence. Earl Smith's story continues here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and with Earl Smith's story. Feeling abandoned by his mom, Earl tried to fill this hole in his heart and fill it with crime. The other thing my dad did for me was he took me to a field one day. I must have been like eight or nine and he takes his pistol out and he puts some stuff out and he starts shooting and hitting this stuff. He says, you want to try? And when I put that pistol in my hand, and I fired it. I cannot believe how that felt to me to fire that gun. And it was all, it, the, the addiction of the sound of a gun in my hand is something I have not forgotten even to this day. And it became a very bad thing that he considered to be a good thing he was doing, but it was a bad thing that I felt so great about the sound of that gun and it being in my hand because I was already, at eight or nine years old, I was already committed to being, doing aberrant things. I was already committed to being different than other people in my household. I was already committed. I did not have a problem with the streets. I didn't have a problem with crime at eight or nine years old. And the gun part was just power. I knew how to, I learned how to shoot a gun. I learned what it sounded like when I shot it, and for me, that was a power. So I'm not saying that it was wrong that he did it because he didn't understand what feeling that gave me the first time I did it. It's almost like if you use drugs, if you if you shoot dope, you're not gonna remember what it felt like. Everyone says, hey, you wanna get high. So you get high and the reason you become addicted is because you keep trying to chase the first high you had. And for me, my addiction was keeping keep chasing the feeling of the first time I fired that gun. I mean, one time a guy almost, my dad and I were in the street and this guy swerves his car like he's trying to hit us. My dad jumps out the way I grab and you know, it's like the guy is laughing and hooting and hollering as he goes down the street. My dad goes to get the gun. I take the gun from him and uh, I hide it again. Then I find the guy and we lived by the railroad tracks, and I just, I mean, I beat the guy, and I left him on the tracks to get hit by a train because of what he had done to my dad. And I kept the gun, and I told everybody, I got this gun. If anybody moves him, I'm going to shoot you. Earl was also a gang member, a pretty big drug dealer around U.S. Route 99, and a college student. You know, part of the part of this 99 quarter deal is you go from Turlock all the way to Sacramento and if you can have a drug trade through that whole quarter 
back in the day, you really being successful. We had an apartment in Turlock. We had one in Modesto. We had one in Stockton. And you had people that lived in Sacramento. And every weekend, we'd go to different cities for the parties. And we'd do all of that. But we developed this quarter. So Stanislaus State, San Juan King Delta College, Sac City College. Uh, people were at different schools. And so everybody was really, really educated, really smart. It wasn't just that we were crazy people. It was we were, we were pretty smart. So we we're all in school and we we're all doing different things. I think all of us get, end up getting our degrees, at least on uh, bachelor degrees. And from there, we, you know, some of us have uh, advanced degrees, but we were OK. But so it was almost like we were a group that did two things and Somewhere in the midst of that, Earl would visit his old nanny, who we considered a grandmother, O.C. The thing that was so great about this lady was that she never moved more than half a mile away from our house. She always found someone that would let her rent a room that she would be close by me. She was that person until she went into the nursing home. She was still living that close to that house I grew up in when she finally was in the nursing home. She made a point of being close enough to me that I could. And, you know, here's the deal. When you're when you're a criminal, when you're committing crime, when you're a gang member, you know, yeah, yeah. For me, I tell people all the time, you know, there's a difference in gang membership and gang banging and gang banging is when you're actually in the process of the stuff. Membership is what you're a part of. And. I could separate the two and never, I tell people, yes, I'm a gang member, 64 years old, I'm a gang member because that's what I was, that's what my commitment is, and that doesn't change, I don't bang. So when I went to see my grandmother as a, when I was much younger, I did not, it didn't change that I was a part of a gang, but the person that she saw, I, I would always make sure I had a haircut, I'd always make sure that I looked presentable, and I would always make sure that when I went to see her, I planned to spend time with her and I would not be in a hurry to leave because I did not want to disrespect her and her memory by any action. So I may have done something the night before, but if I, it was always like, almost like a calendar. I knew when it was time to go see her, if I went more than two weeks, it was a problem. And she knew it was a problem. So I couldn't, I couldn't let like two, three, a month go by and I didn't go see her because I was in all the other junk. No, sometimes the junk had to pause because she was still a priority. And it was, it was the calendar voice. I knew because if, if she didn't know I was okay, it, it would trouble her beyond measure. And yet he put himself into situations that could trouble her. Well... I'd been off at the golf course of uh, 19 years old and we were doing a big deal. So we went out to the golf course so we could sort of talk about it where no one, we knew no one was around because we knew we were being followed and watched. Uh, so my gun was in my golf bag, other gun was under my bed. And so I, but the World Series is on, so I have to get home in time to watch the game. So I leave my clubs in the car and run in the house, and I turn the TV on, knock on the door. Guy says, I came to pay you. He owed me some money, and he was late. 
And so I put the word out. Whenever you see him, let him know that he owes me. He's late. And I got to deal with him. Once again, I knew the guy. I knew the kid. I, 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 I started him off selling. And now business dictated that because you didn't handle your part of it, I got to do something to you. And you know what that meant. So then he gets someone along with some other people and they convince this other person, okay, if you kill him, the problem will be solved. So this guy, Stevie comes, I don't even know the guy, never seen him before in my life, but he's with this guy that owed me the money. And they come in, I say, well, sit down because I'm watching a game and I needed to really process what I was gonna have. I had to do something. I sort of liked the guy, but I knew I had to do something because personally, I liked him. Business dictated I had to do something to him. And as I'm sitting there, he sort of makes a motion like he's pulling the trigger with a finger. And the guy he's with, while I'm watching the World Series, he just gets up and takes a gun and starts shooting me. And so no gun up under my uh, couch, no, no gun in the living room. Uh, so now I'm dodging, trying to dodge bullets. and. I grab a coffee table. The bullet goes through a coffee table. It hits me, and he has six bullets in the gun. He hits me all six times. I'm shot in my face, my neck, my shoulder, my back, because I'm sort of turning and spinning. And one bullet goes in and comes back out, so I have seven holes in me. And then he stands over me clicking the gun, and the guy that brought him there says, come on, let's go, he's done. And they walk away. And it doesn't get more compelling than this, folks. You're seeing it, you're feeling it, you're hearing it from Earl Smith. The consequence of many bad decisions and the consequence of the abandonment of love from a young man. And these are the things that happen. These are the stories that you hear here regularly. And we tell them not to depress you and not to do anything but ultimately inspire. When we come back, you're going to hear the redemption story to follow. And it is remarkable because how one rises from this circumstance, my goodness, it's, there is no worse circumstance, perhaps, than the one this young man is facing. And by the way, the way he was able to separate his life out and go see Osi and just, just sort of man up and straighten up, but then right back to the pull of that life, the only life he knew, the only life that was organized around any kind of meaning, camaraderie all the other things. We've heard countless times here stories from gang members who say that that's the love they did not get from their family. When we continue, Earl Smith's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories. 
and with gang member Earl Smith's story of finally being on the receiving end of gunfire. The other part that really was sort of weird, when you're on the other end of the gun, when you're firing it and you feel the vibration in your hand as you pull the trigger and the sound sort of travels through your hand, through your arm, up into your ears and into your heart. The sound of a gun when you shoot it actually almost, it, it, it seems like it, for me it was hitting my heart and it became part of that. But now I'm getting shot and I know exactly like how some people must have felt. When you get shot, it's just like you have a poker, a hot poker that's been sitting in fire that is poked into different parts of your body. And the only thing I kept thinking is, I need water, I'm hot, I'm burning up, I'm burning up, I need water, I need water. It was just like these hot pokers were like in my face, there were hot pokers where I'd been shot. and. In my neck, there's hot pokers, and in my there's hot. Uh, I'm just like someone has taken a branding iron poker and poked it all the way into me, so it went through me, and it stopped at a point, and that point it stopped at is like I'm on fire, but I'm not on fire in one spot. I'm on fire in a lot of spots at the same time, and it it's almost like you would take a flame and put it inside of someone's body, and allow it to continue to burn. I mean, think about this. So the, the police have me under surveillance. They're getting ready to bust me. So they're on a corner and I'm our car. These guys come in. I'm shot numerous times. My neighbor said they didn't know if it was firecrackers or what was going on. They could just hear bam, 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 bam. bam. And then they leave and they walk out still under surveillance on the corner over there. I get up, I knock on my neighbor's door and say, can you call the police? I've been shot. She starts screaming, she calls the police. They're there in no time at all. Cause they're, you know, wow, of course they're gonna be there in no time at all. They come in, they walk right past me. They don't say a word to me. They start going through my house, then they leave. Another set comes in and the lady, Miss Lorraine says, well, where's the ambulance? And I heard them tell her, lady, if you want an ambulance for him, you call him. They were so, and that's the thing that people don't understand. There comes a point when even the authorities get tired of you. They get tired of what you're getting away with. And at some point, they believe that death is the easiest thing to deal with because they no longer have to deal with a person like me. So she had to call the ambulance and I'm on this gurney. And they, they, they make it real clear that uh, I'm not going to make it. They make it very clear and I just need to tell the police who shot me. I wasn't gonna tell. I had no intention of telling. And Dr. Morris, he says, I don't know what's wrong with you people. He was another person that was laying on a gurney in his emergency room and the police were saying, tell us who did it. It was like, and it, it's, it's sort of crazy, but it's not crazy. I'd rather die, and at least they could say he didn't tell. Wow, man, what a great name. He went to the grave without telling. <laughs> what, kind, what kind of badge is that? What, what badge did you get for that? 
Uh, but when you grow up a certain way, that's what you believe. And me saying I'm going to die or whatever, here's the deal about that, that I tell people. I deserve to die. For what the things I was involved in, the things that I had done up to that point, I fully understood I deserved it. And I deserved what the doctor said. I deserved that. I deserved whatever would have taken place in that day. Because I had worked really hard to get to that point. My dad comes in and he asks Dr. Morrissey, how bad is he? He says, he ain't, he's not going to make it. And my dad grabs him around the collar very gently, but he pulls him close to him and he pulls him close to me. He says, Doc, you better do what you do best and I'm going to go do what I do best. He left me on that gurney, but he left me to go pray with the understanding that that doctor's job was to help me. If you think, you think about my dad having this significant name in the community. His dad was a union leader. Chief of police knows who he is. John McFall, who was majority whip in Congress back in those days, would come to the house and visit with my dad. And I called him Uncle John. And senators, Kranz and Hayakawa, they would come because they needed my dad's support for stuff. So he was significant. But when I got shot, my dad said, son, this is bad. We're going to make it. He said, son, you're a rebel, but you're God's rebel, and we're going to get through this. He didn't say you. He said we're. That was the love he had for me. He was wounded because I was wounded. And I wasn't going to get through it. We were going to get through it. That was the dad. That's my dad. And in between those exits of the doctor going back wherever he went and my dad going to pray, and there I'm just laying. They're all, you know, I'm laying there waiting to die. That's what they, they're waiting on me to die. And then this voice says to me, you're not going to die and have something for you to do. I started laughing. And the something was be a chaplain in San Quentin. The prison that's home to the largest death row in America. That's what he told me. So I'm sort of shaking now and they have these monitors on me. And the doctor comes in. I said, Doc, if I tell you where the bullets are, will it help? Now, remember, my dad's over there praying. He's nowhere at this point now. But he's praying. And the doctor says, no. I said, so I pointed at my nose. I said, it's right here. And the bleeding stops. And as I started to point to where the bullets were, the bleeding stopped. I believe the combination of that doctor leaving, the voice of the Lord telling me I'm not going to die, I have something for you to do. And my dad, away praying, he had enough confidence in who God was that he could talk to God and trust that God was going to take care of this, his son that was a rebel. And that's... He, so he, he, he was not afraid to leave because he had confidence that God could do what he could only do best. And three days later, my dad picks me up from the hospital, you know, parks the car there, gets me in the car. And you think that was cool. My dad can go back to what he's doing. No, you know what my dad did every day after that till I got up and strong enough. My dad sat in a chair at the door of my bedroom. And every time I woke up, I saw my dad sitting there with his gun. Now, when I slept, I don't know what he did, but I can tell you this, when I was awoke, my dad would sit, uh, when I look, he would be in that chair. He was guarding me. 
He's making sure that this thing didn't happen again. And that was my dad. And after all the embarrassments I'd done, I was embarrassed. I did some crazy things and my dad kept loving me in spite of it. Kept loving me. And what a story you're hearing. I'm on fire, like taking flames and putting them inside a body, he said, describing what it feels like to get shot. And he recalled being on that gurney, clearly not thinking he was going to make it. I deserve to die, he said. I deserved whatever would have taken place on that day. And there was his dad, a prayer warrior. When I got shot, dad said, we're going to make it. You're a rebel, but you're God's rebel. We're going to make it. And that we, folks, that we meant so much to this boy. I did some crazy things in my life, but my dad kept loving me in spite of it. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Earl Smith's story, and my goodness, what every dad can learn, listening to this story as well, and mom. This is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and with gang member Earl Smith's story. After being shot, Earl says he heard the voice of God and it led him to head to Bishop College in Dallas to study religion and become a prison chaplain. But his counselors there told him that this goal was unrealistic given his criminal background. So they advised him to take a job with the Boy Scouts of America. People that say, well, that God voice thing is crazy it didn't happen let me let here's what i need them to understand in october of 1975 god says to me you're not going to die you're going to be a chaplain in san quentin prison i'll tell you how god works i'm at a i'm at a service club for kiwanis um buzz brewer who worked for the salvation army as a, a correctional chaplain he says, hey, didn't you say you wanted to be a, a prison chaplain? I said, yeah, you know how you do an introduction at the Kiwanis Club to tell who you are and what you're interested in. And he remembered that. He says, well, there's an opening in San Quentin. Uh, you should apply. He says, now, they said they're going to hire this other guy, but at least you could apply. And I said, okay. He comes back three weeks later. He says, hey, did you ever apply? I said, nah, not yet. I, I'm going to get around to it. He says, I didn't think so. Here's the application. Fill it out. I fill the application out. I get a response from the state personnel board and it says, Dear Reverend Smith, I'm sorry to inform you that you do not meet the minimum requirements for the position. I ball it up, throw the paper down, and the voice of the Lord says once again, call him and ask him what you need to do. It's a test. I unball the paper. I call this number on the paper. There's a silent voice on the other end. And then the lady says, Reverend Smith, we're very sorry. We sent you the wrong letter. 
you are qualified. Well, I was qualified in 75 the night I got shot. And he said, that's what I was going to do. I was already qualified. So then I get the new letter. I go to the interview. The guy that they're going to hire says, are you here for San Quentin? I said, yeah. He says, well, you can forget it. They've already promised me the job. I said, okay, well, I just need to go ahead and go through the process. He doesn't know anything about me. I now, I knew about him. Well, here's the way it worked. He worked there for five and a half months on probation. And then they decided not to hire him. And when they decided not to hire him, they then called me and asked me, was I still interested? The guy that they decided not to hire became a volunteer that I trained and he became a phenomenal chaplain. And we both agreed. It was not that he was not qualified to be a chaplain. He was just at a place that God had already reserved for me. So whatever you say about the voice, exactly what I told people God said is what happened. So if when you put it all together, wouldn't you believe that God, you'd have to believe that voice too, wouldn't you? And when I'm hired to go to work there, I remember walking into the chapel and I look around as I'm walking in, I see a guy making a drug transaction over by the bathroom. I see something else taking place. And then I realize, thank you, God, this is where I need to be because everything I saw, I could understand. And then right after that, the prison went on lockdown because of another killing. And so 13 of the next 16 months I was there, the majority of those 13 or 16 months, they were locked down. And I started having to go to the cell blocks to see guys. So I wasn't like there and everybody was in church and you know, I was like, wow, is this what it's going to be like? And so I started going out and talking to guys. I talked, I had no problem talking to gang leaders. That was the, that was the training I had. And, you know, then that December of my first year there, I'm still six months in. I still haven't done my six months probation. I'm giving out Christmas cards and on my unit and I'm giving these Christmas cards out and I saw a guy once when he shot me. I saw him once in court. I didn't testify against him because I wanted to kill him. And I want, but I needed him on the street. And the third time I see this guy in my entire life, he's now on the second tier of North Block in San Quentin. And no one knows he's the guy that shot me. And I don't know that he's there till I'm giving out Christmas cards. And I remember, and I'm only telling the story because it's part of what God can do in bringing things to pass and making clarity out of rough situations. And you think that you're okay. You think that God has really gotten you smooth. I'm a chaplain now. What? So what if I was a drug dealer? So what if I'm a gang member? So what if I've done all that other stuff? God has blessed me beyond measure. Then all of a sudden, here's what happens. I see this guy. And when I see this guy, I realize I really had not forgiven him. It was just talk. I was angry. I looked at him. He jumped away from the bars. He said, hey, man, uh, I got shot, too, because I knew that a guy knew shot him. The guy that shot him recently died in prison. He was doing a life sentence. So he gets away from the bars. I keep on giving out these Christmas cards. And I'm crying now because I realize I really have not forgiven this guy. And now he's in a situation, all I need to do is tell somebody from home, that's the guy that shot me. And it's a done deal. 
And I was thinking, God, why would you make me feel I was okay, that everything was all right to get me to this point? Now I'm going to have him killed. I mean, you think about this. You learn about all these things if you go to college or seminary and forgiveness is this and you release it, you forgive and you forgive. How many times you heard forgive and forgive? Well, it sounds good. But when you're confronted by that thing that's caused you harm or pain is when you realize, do you forgive? And even when you're in the midst of your forgiveness, have you really forgotten? For me, it was not only had I not forgiven, but it was forgetting about it was far removed because when I saw him, I realized that he had got away with doing something to me that I had not retaliated for. And I'm a chaplain and I'm thinking like that. And I'm like thinking, God, why did you let me get here to think like this? That was the kind of thinking, thinking that I had when I was in the world. And here I was thinking that same way as soon as I saw him. And it, it was it was a very scary moment for me. And that's why I just cried. I was just like, what is going on? Why would you let this guy be here? Why would you allow me to be confronted with him knowing that I really had not forgiven? Why would you make me think I forgave him? You ever have a conversation with God where you're trying to rationalize what you're dealing with and and it's almost like you're angry with God because you can't understand why God would make you feel like you were further along than you really are. And you're troubled by the fact that you're not as far along as you thought you were. And that's when I saw that guy, that's where I was. But the thing that's so great about God is he takes you to the end and calls you to have to pass over that thing to get back off. Sometimes you get to the end and to get away, you have to go back or pass the thing that you crossed over on the journey. And as I go back in front of this guy, I look at him and I said, I need to say something to you. And he's, he's terrified. Basically, I said, I need to thank you because God used you to get to be. And I don't even know where those words came from. I left there. I went to my chapel. I sat down in my chair in my office and I just started crying. Well, what I didn't know is he wrote a letter to the warden and says, you got to get me out of this prison. The chaplain's going to have me killed. So they called me in for an investigation. They said, do you know this guy? I said, yeah, I just realized he's here. Well, he wrote this letter saying you're going to have him killed. And I said, and it was George Jackson, who was the associate warden that was over. That was my boss. And I said, Mr. Jackson, I'll tell you this. Right now, today. This is the safest place that guy will ever be because he's not a threat to me. The only thing I want him to know is who Jesus is. And he looks at me. Remember, I'm on probation. They could have did me like they did Leonard and just say, OK, go home. We're not going to hire you. But you know what they did? This is the week of Christmas. They put him in a special transport and sent him to another prison so I could stay there. Now, what if I would have had any other reaction other than the one I had when I encountered him. And I believe that was another test because from there, God just, he did so many amazing things at that prison, amazing things. But what happens with that test? If I say, well, you know what? I'm going to have my people get to you. I'm going to have my people do this to you or something like that. What if I did that? But instead, 
I said what God had placed on my heart to say to him. And I believe that was the reason why I was able to stay at San Quentin, because I, I passed that test. And you're listening to Earl Smith's story and those words he heard on October of 1975. God says to me, you're not going to die. You're going to be a chaplain at San Quentin Prison. And it happened. By the way, there's so much more to Earl Smith's story that you can read about in his powerful book titled Death Row Chaplain, Unbelievable True Stories from America's Most Notorious Prison. Get it at Amazon.com today. And at the very beginning of the story, we teased that Earl worked at the highest levels of two radically different and yet similar jobs, one as a chaplain for St. Quentin's prisoners and the other as the chaplain for millionaire athletes. Earl was the chaplain for the San Francisco Giants, and he is still the chaplain for the Golden State Warriors and the 49ers. But millionaire athletes and prisoners often come from the very same neighborhoods and are dealing with the very same human brokenness that affect us all. Earl Smith's story, here on Our American Story.